Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today I'm re releasing an important and timely podcast improving birth and health outcomes for black moms and babies. I think this is a conversation we need to hear and continue to talk about in light of what's been happening over the weekend and the protests about what happened with George Floyd. I think we need to revisit this and have a conversation again. Over the weekend, I put a post on Instagram with a simple statistic that black women in the U.S. are four times more likely to die in childbirth. And someone left a comment saying, thank you for posting. They didn't know this information. So I thought, let's have this conversation again and get this information out. So I am by no means an expert on this information. So about a year ago, I did seek out someone who is. So I spoke with Alexandra Samuel Sturgis, and she is a licensed clinical social worker and founder of Spirited by Truth, a private practice located in Ontario, California, where she provides mental health services, education, and community, and support for expecting women of color to assist in their fight towards a healthier birth outcome for them and their babies. It's a really important conversation, and I will say that Alex was just absolutely delightful to speak to. She herself is spirited and an insightful and supportive, and just she's a great person, and it was a really fantastic conversation. I was honored to be able to have that chance to speak with her. So a few things that we talk about in this conversation, we talk about what's going on in the birthing and maternal health world that's leading to such racial disparities. We talk about unconscious biases in the medical system and how that affects women and babies. I hope you enjoy this important conversation and please feel free to write in or comment or just let me know your thoughts. All right, we're going to take a super quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Alex. Hi, Alex. How are you today? I'm doing great, Deb. How are you? I'm doing great. It's been quite a long day, but I've been wanting to talk to you for some time ever since I heard you speak. I don't know if you actually read the email I sent. I'm like, I literally just finished listening to you and I'm reaching out. <laughs> hey, you know, that means that means when I hear from people, that means I'm doing something right. So Oh, you're doing I, many I things right. That. This is exciting. Yeah. And and what you speak about and what I've heard you on other podcasts and I've looked you up on your website, it's such important information. So let's just Jump in a little bit about what you well, first, I guess we should say what we're talking about improving the outcome for black moms and babies. Very important. But let's also just hear a little bit about you and what got you started on this career path. Well, um, it, what got me started in the world of maternal mental health is through my own uh, personal and professional experiences. So, um, my own family and having two sisters who both experienced uh, postpartum depression. And I had my oldest sister experienced perinatal loss. And just the simple fact that there was no language surrounded around how to um, dive in and provide support to my sisters, as well as how the family dynamic kind of kept going. And it was, it was a conversation that was not happening. It was, it was just like, my sister is struggling with her baby. Well, that must mean that she doesn't want her baby or, um, 
you know, she's a bad mom or even with my sister who experienced perinatal loss, um, being excited that another baby was coming on board and my sister coming home without a baby um, was not only traumatic for, for me in my mind, because I knew that something like that has to impact someone's soul in a real way. Mm -hmm. And there was no discussion around it. It was just like life just kind of, you know, it kept going and the conversation ended. So through my own education and learning more about uh, maternal health and perinatal loss, I was like, oh, this is huge. Like if this is happening in my family, I know it's happening to families all across the world, like just the conversation not happening. And then going into my clinical work um, and working with families and working with women of color, there was no real language to define their experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it was kind of like this reoccurring theme for for women, which is like, you know, you feel pain and it's, mis you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but you got to keep going. You got to keep pressing in and not realizing that many women are remaining stuck in the trauma uh, that they're experiencing um, through their path or journey through motherhood. So working with these mothers and the families um, experience the same personal experiences that I have had in my own family, uh, it allowed me to provide them with a language to, to share and to empower them that there is help. And Did that... You did you ever talk to your sisters once you became a social worker and this became your work and you talked to other families and maybe it's too personal for me to ask, but did, did you ever then turn around and be like, Hey, I know it's been a long time, but we never talked about this. Yeah, absolutely. And what's funny is now there's, like I said, there's a language around it. And mm -hmm. so now my sisters will be like, Oh yeah, I had that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh yeah, I was like where my mind space was, was completely in the dumps. Like, and to, to be able to have a conversation and, you know, allow them to have the experience of feeling like, you know what, there wasn't something wrong with me per se. Like there wasn't anything wrong with my being that what I experienced was actually real. And that probably it, made them feel so much better too. Uh, oh Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, even with um, the loss and being able to bring out the baby pictures and being able to bring out the blanket that the baby was wrapped in and, and just having a dialogue around it was so important versus just never talking about it. And so now, like, as my niece, nieces and even if my, my nephews and their uh, partners are having children, now we can have a full conversation about it. Now it's like, okay, let's make sure things are being done correctly. Let's make sure that you have the proper information, questions to ask your providers so that they can feel very much so empowered in their experience. So your start really came from a very deep personal place to to work with black moms and babies and, and whole families. I, I think that's always more authentic when it really comes from a deep, deep understanding. Yeah, absolutely. So, so can you talk a little bit about Spirited by Truth? What is the mission? What's it all about? 
So uh, through these life experiences uh, birthed the formation of Spirited by Truth. So our mission is to equip women of color with holistic strategies that promote optimal well-being and healthy life balance and motherhood work in life. And so it's really just about women stepping into um, their truth in a very bold and courageous way. Many women um, live in silence and suffer in silence and feel that their stories and their life experiences do not matter. And so Spirit of Our Truth is just a way for women to have a voice and to be heard and to be supported in their own healing journey. And so I'm very uh, privileged and, and honored to be able to be a part of the many women that I serve um, in, in that journey with them. Is it group um, sessions or is it one-on-one? How does it work? Uh, Both. So um, there is the Spirited Mama community, which is is a group. Um, And depending on what is needed during the season when the group is offered, it can be clinically based. Mm -hmm. So providing therapeutic interventions and education and also being a support group, which it might not include all those clinical pieces, but a platform for women to discuss their experiences and kind of be like, you know what, that's my experience as well. So I'm not alone in this. Like what I'm feeling is not um, abnormal. This is something that is very common. It's just not, you know, women just don't speak about it. Mm-hmm. I think and it's so, so important what you're doing. So important. Yeah. And so, and then in individual therapy, um, of course, it's it provides the ability to go deeper into some of the issues because, you know, when, when women become mothers, it brings up a lot of different things. And so some of those things could be their own personal trauma, their own relationships with, with their mothers that were not the best, um, them questioning their ability to be mothers, as well as you know, um, trauma, sexual trauma that they may have experienced as well as, you know, some of the challenges that are being presented in their, um, partnerships with, with who they're sharing this life with, with, with the baby. And so, um, we're able to do more deep work in, in more individual setting, um, which is also very good as well. I like to provide both options for moms because, um, individual therapy, um, it has an expense to it and some providers, you know, accept insurance. I accept insurance, some don't. And so having that group is more a cost effective way, um, for them to get the skills that they need to take Mm -hmm. home to practice and also be supported so that they're just not, not engaging in anything. So having both options. It's a great option because, yes, not everyone either has insurance or has the funds to support that. My husband's actually a social worker, and he does. um, Oh, awesome. Yeah, so I'm a very pro-social worker. So he does also um, group and individuals. So you're you're singing my song. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's so needed. It's so needed. Like, it's just in the group setting, like, and I'll try to pull my, you know, women who are doing individual into the group setting, like, okay, you're doing great. Come and get you some community because once the the therapeutic alliance, you know, comes to an end, um, you're going to need a community around you. You're going to need people to continue the conversation Mm -hmm. outside of, you know, off the couch. Absolutely. So let's start to shift our conversation to one of the things I heard you speaking on on some other conversations is about, will you talk a little bit into the world of 
birthing and the maternal health world, kind of the racial disparities. Because it's we, we read about this in papers, but I don't think everyone has a chance to really comprehend it. Okay, so um, I'll start with just, you know, some, some simple statistics Great. from the CDC. So roughly um, 700 women in the U.S. die each year due to pregnancy or delivery-related complications. Mm -hmm. So alarmingly, the maternal mortality rates for women in the U.S. are the highest in the developed world with stark racial disparities. So black women specifically have the highest uh, maternal mortality rate in the U.S. and are nearly four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes compared to white women. And so some of these um, factors that are leading to the disparity in the world of Black maternal health, uh, researchers uh, have begun to identify what these factors are um, to the pregnancy-related deaths for Black women. So on a broader scale, there's a lot of social inequities that take place involving differential access to healthy food and clean drinking water, safe neighborhoods, quality schools, good jobs, reliable transportation also influences various aspects of of Black women's lives, including their pregnancy. And so um, taking a deeper look into all of these different factors um, that lead to poor birth outcomes for Black women is important. Yeah, and those statistics are staggering. Absolutely staggering. So will you talk also about the disparity of women or Claire getting for mental health support? Well, I think uh, for women of for women of color or black women um, seeking mental health services, this also goes back to just the availability of um, access to uh, insurance and and um, you know, having this coverage. And there's many states in this country that lack Medicaid expansion. So that's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is there's a huge stigma in the Black community when it comes to mental health services. So, you know, the thought of going in and telling a stranger um, your deepest, darkest secrets about your family is is very hard for people of color to, to do. Um, and to be able to tr- to trust and have a trusting relationship with that person and understanding that what we discussed does not leave this space is huge. You know, when, when uh, Black women are accessing mental health services to their family and to the community might seem like, oh, you're weak. Mm. Why, why aren't you strong? You're not the strong Black woman. Why are you crazy? Why are you going to talk to those people? And so it's about breaking down those barriers of stigma so that people can understand that it's not just your physical health, like everything is interconnected, your mm-hmm. physical, your spiritual, and your mental. And you, if, if one is not being taken care of, then everything else is imbalanced. Um, and, and that's really what is the body's way of responding to the imbalances when people are having depression and anxiety, that means something is off mm-hmm. and, and, and trying to lure them in, you know, in a sense, like, come on, come get help so that you're not suffering alone and providing a safe space for them is important. Well, the fact that you're saying, um, that's what's what I'm saying, but I guess having the, the spirited truth available, because if there is a stigma against seeking mental health, you are providing 
you know, it's granted it's a small way because it can't get to everybody. Um, right. But how great that you're able to do that and and try to change the interpretation of what mental health is, of getting good mental health support. So you're doing great work there. Um, so I want to talk a little, there's something that I was thinking about as I was listening to on something else. And you were talking about um, the racial disparity and just simply the getting uh, mental health support and getting uh, the way people are looked at in hospitals. I was recently doing this weekend workshop of this birthing from within. And one of the students is a student midwife and she commented on a personal experience that she had and the biases that you had talked about. One of her clients was a woman of color and she went into the story about her client kept asking for a pillow. And it's all she wanted. She was in labor and she wanted another pillow. And she kept asking it. And the way she was treated for just simply asking, almost like she was a bother. Why do you want this? And then the Mm -hmm. student midwife asked. And they're like, sure. It's I mean, talk about unconscious biases. Maybe it wasn't unconscious um, in the medical system. So <laughs> maybe what as I think about this, yeah, can, yeah, you, can yeah. you talk a little bit about the unconscious biases in the medical system and how that impacts uh, women of color receiving care? Okay. So I think, you know, for a lot of people, unconscious bias is like, well, what is that? So defining it really quick, which is it's, it's really just habits of the mind. So it's something that's learned over time through repeated personal experiences and cultural socialization. And unconscious bias is, is highly resistant to change. Change is possible, but it's about having awareness of it. So despite Ample evidence of racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare, uh, progress in correcting these inequities remains very elusive. So, providers' behavior has been identified as an important contributor to disparities in healthcare. So, there's a significant amount of evidence that, that shows that healthcare providers hold stereotypes. So, based on a patient's race, class, sex, and other characteristics, that influence their interpretation of behaviors and symptoms and their even their overall clinical decisions. So application of, of these stereotypes frequently occur outside of conscious awareness. So providers interact less effectively with minorities than with white patients. So psychological research has shown that um, white providers often feel anxious when interacting with um, black people or people of color because of a lack of of positive experience with interracial encounters leading to them um, choose uh, maybe unconsciously choosing very avoidant type of interactions. So in the context of a clinical encounter, this may translate as white providers engaging in avoidance behaviors uh, and spending less time with non-white patients, leading to poor patient-provider relationships. And then on the flip side, you have non-white patients who may be particularly vigilant um, for signs of prejudice and rejection. So this may interpret signs of anxiety displayed by white providers as reflecting a negative attitude. So these nonverbal behaviors 
associated with the the provider's anxiousness overlap with the considerable cues of dislike. So you so I will say this and people might challenge me and they might think Alex you're crazy, but we're all carrying unconscious biases because we live in a society that provides so many different messages. And so here you have a provider who has had their life experiences and some of those experiences and, and, and some of them, those life experiences may be uh, traumatic considering what, what, what it is and what that ethnic group is. And then you have this person of color who's coming into that space who may have a distrust towards, let's say, a white provider. And then you have all these dynamics happening in the space and you have, you know, the white provider feeling like very anxious and approaching or asking certain questions based on their own personal life experiences. And then you have the person of color who um, is already vigilant and, and actually expecting to be treated less than. Mm-hmm. And so um, in these spaces, it's like we need to have a conversation about these stereotypes that we're all carrying about different groups of people. And, you know, not, and this is not at all to, because there are people who just don't like other groups of people. Like there are people who are consciously biased Mm -hmm. and they're in our medical system. Um, But there are a lot of people I think that are walking around with a lot of unconscious biases and to be able to have a safe space for them in that medical setting you know, maybe during their own clinical supervision and stuff like that so that they can work through those those biases and those stereotypes and understanding that you're in a in a healing profession. And so when you allow those stereotypes to come in the space, automatically poor outcomes are going to happen. Right. So you're just continuously cycling further and further, further down. So what would you suggest for someone they're in a hospital setting, they're in labor. And let's face it, we don't want to be in our thinking mind during labor. That's a time no. to really get into, no. I call it circling the wagons and just like getting down and dirty, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. moving in through mud. Yeah. So how can we help allow that birthing person to get into that space if they're experiencing racial bias during the hospital or, or even back it up to prenatal care. So how are we establishing trust if even during their just, you know, regular checkup, they're experiencing some, some, something going on? Yeah. I'm a huge proponent of, of knowing your rights. And let's say during the, the prenatal part of, you know, pregnancy and you're coming across a provider and you might feel like this provider is, is, is being, you know, very unprofessional and, and you feel like there's some discrimination happening, I think that there needs to be a conversation about it. I think that exercising your rights, understanding uh, the consent forms that you're signing, um, everyone who is in a healing profession, um, for the most part, they have to report to a board. I know doctors do. And so if you're feeling that, file a grievance, file a complaint. Um, because if this stuff is left unchecked, it's going to continue to happen. And I know if, if a board of, of medicine uh, would come to me and say, oh, we have this complaint filed against you because of X, Y, and Z, it's going to make me check myself. Mm-hmm. But, if, but if it goes uncorrected, 
then I'm going to continue to operate the way that I'm operating. And when it comes to the de- the delivery room, like like you said in in the workshop that you were doing in this birth worker had this experience, I think the best thing is when you're going to give birth in a hospital setting that you you have your community with you and understanding that this may or may not happen. And so understanding that who these people are, who these advocates are that you're bringing in the space are able to actually do the advocacy that you need so that you can focus on your your birth. Mm -hmm. And um, I always say, you know, when it comes to, you know, midwives or doulas or whoever you're going to have in that space, interview them. And be sure, you know, be sure that they are able to come into that space and feel comfortable with saying, hey, she asked you three times for a pillow. Um, We need the pillow now and not feel like, oh, well, you know, you asked and I don't want to bother them Mm -hmm. because medical staff, they're very busy. And so and they're not just serving you. They're serving, you know other rooms of women who are giving birth. And we want to make sure that if you're going into a hospital setting, that you have those, those, those ride or die tough, you know, folks in your corner who are ready to advocate on your behalf. Yeah. Cause the birthing person should not be the one having to ask over and over for no. something as simple as a pillow and let alone respect and an autonomy. <laughs> I mean, we're just, no. I mean, there's a, No, you, you, you gotta make sure you got the, you know, you gotta have the right folks in the space, not, not people that you're going to have to, you know, try to push them while you're giving birth to get what you need. Right. They have to come in and be ready to do those things. What if someone doesn't have a doula in their availability or their community? Do you just recommend then the partner is just super prepared to speak up? Whether it's their partner or their mother or their cousin or their best friend, educating themselves on, on, you know, what this experience is going to look like in the hospital setting. I know a lot of hospitals do tours of their delivery room and things like that, but understanding exactly what they need. So looking at what that birth plan is Mm -hmm. and doing your best to try to stick to it. Of course, we know things happen um, in the process of delivery that might change that. But just the simple things as far as comfort and, and them, you know, you get nine months to prepare for this due date for them to be prepared to be in your corner and um, do the advocacy that's needed, like making sure that those pillows are happening or (laughs) making sure that they're getting their ice or um, if they want to go and sit in a bathtub or if they want to change positions, that that is being communicated to the staff um, because, you know, ultimately it's your birthing experience. Yes. And I think a, lo- a lot of times when you go into a hospital setting, um, the nurses or the staff can kind of convince you like, no, this is how you need to do it. Mm-hmm. And this is how it's going to be done. And it takes away that autonomy if you if you're not um, number one educated on what that experience is, and also having people um, your your support who is coming into that space also educated about what that process looks like. Yeah, I was actually doing some research about birth trauma, and what was really interesting, and I don't know if interesting is the right word, sad could be the better word, devastating, um, was that this one study by Penny Simpkins was saying. 
on average, 20, I think it was 25 to 34% of women post-birth uh, declared it was a traumatic experience for them. And then some of the reasons were they felt unsafe and fearful. They mm-hmm. felt they couldn't communicate. The communication with the staff, what the medical staff, uh, wasn't fluent. And I mean, you're, you're, you keep going, like you're going back to those. Like if someone is coming in feeling fearful and not being able to communicate, it's it's a higher chance it could lead to birth trauma. And then we already talked about, you know, the level of postpartum depression. So it's just, we, hopefully we can back up and help people not even fall into that funnel. Well, yeah. And when I'm working with pregnant moms, I always try to provide them options. So if they're, if they are not, um, high risk pregnancy, um, and that, you know, the hospital is fearful. It's looking at birthing centers. It's looking at, you know, other alternatives that, that may be a better fit in, in choosing what your birthing process looks like. Mm -hmm. So I know, for example, my niece who had her son, she went into the hospital setting and it was not pleasurable for her. It was a very cold, feeling. And so she went to a local birthing uh, center and she interviewed uh, the midwife and the doulas that were there. And she felt more comfortable in that space than in a hospital. And so I, I, I work with women who experience birth trauma and it's mainly surrounded around the fact that they were being told how to give birth. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they weren't allowed the option. Like if they felt they needed to move in a specific position and a nurse or a doctor is coming in and saying, no, you need to lay on your back. Well, you know, um, that's not going to feel good to anyone. Yeah. It's not going to feel good, you know, or, um, you and know, they're just you belittled. Might, they're also belittled. Yeah, your, you know, they, your dignity is taken away. And, and you're so vulnerable. Like, yeah. You know, um, you're so vulnerable and, um, you know, even when they, they try to push medication on you, you might say you want to have a natural birth and, and you feel like you can do it. And, and the nurse keeps coming in like, OK, you know, you, you're, you're this many centimeters. You might want to get the epidural or if you don't hurry up, you know, we're going to have to do a C-section. And so how do you you know, and this is stuff my clients tell me, and I'm like, so how exactly are you supposed to hurry up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Open cervix, open. <laughs> you know, how do you hurry up? Yeah. And, oh, I don't you know, like hearing uh, this. That's... You know, uh, and and have a baby. I, 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 it's unheard of. But this is the type of, you know, uh, I feel like it's factory style birthing in yeah. our healthcare system, and. Um, the the genuine relationships between the medical professionals and the patients are it's just it's becoming non-existent the relationship between uh people is becoming non-existent in the healthcare system which creates just strains on everyone's part mm-hmm. everyone's part and to be rushed in to do a C-section that's terrifying mm-hmm. at and least they have and, you to talk to at least they're then going to have you know, I mean, hopefully before the situation that you can support them, but I'm glad that you're there at least to help them unpack this situation. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and with, with birth trauma, um, going home and which this is a whole nother topic, which is you, 
you have your baby, you experience birth trauma, and you have your partner who, you know, several weeks down the line want to be intimate with you. The fear of getting pregnant again is so deep that it completely shuts off intimacy between two people. Right. And then that starts to also splinter the relationship. Absolutely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I want to talk a little bit about the impact of chronic stress on women of color, because there's been a lot of research about that, and yet maybe people don't know. Yeah, so with, with you know, women of color, um, they're, especially with black, men, black women, uh, the health problems that can occur from this, this chronic uh, stress, this um, constantly occurring response of, of long uh, experience of stress um, is a response. As the response continues, it, it creates a, a danger zone for black women or women of color. So with chronic stress, those same life-saving responses in your body uh, can start to suppress your immune system, your digestion, it impacts your sleep, even your reproductive system. So, you you know, a lot of women who are dealing with infertility, that ongoing unregulated chronic stress does have an impact on your reproductive system, which um, may cause them to just stop working normally. Hmm. Different people may feel stress in different ways. So, for example, some people experience mainly digestive symptoms. So a lot of clients that I have that experience, you know, severe anxiety, they have very bad digestive systems. They're constantly um, going to the hospital for, you know, different types of indigestion issues and things like that while others might have headaches and constant migraines. High blood pressure is huge with chronic stress, sleeplessness, uh, sadness and depression, anger and irritability. So you got to think if you're not sleeping, you know, that's going to impact all types of emotions and moods that you're experiencing throughout the day. So people under chronic stress are more prone to frequent and severe uh, viral infections, as well as when we're thinking of pregnancy and you're in, in chronic stress and unregulated uh, stress, the, the chances of you having gestational hypertension becomes very high. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you're not going in or into therapy or let's say even if you have a certain spiritual or religious practice and you have a community surrounded around that where you're having conversations on how to reduce this stress, it's not only going to impact the mom, it's also impacting the baby throughout the pregnancy cycle. Yeah. I mean, the the way stress affects the body and we know that 
what the mom feels, the stress she feels affects the baby. And gosh, and then even getting into that mindset of I'm stressed. Oh no, my baby's feeling it. Oh no, my baby's feeling it. It just stresses you more. Right. right. It's like this cycle, <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm hurting my baby, you know? And, and it's like, you know, there has to be education place. And I wish, I wish more, uh, you know, OBs, I feel have more education when it comes to mental health. I think they, they're, taught a lot about the physical health of the woman and the baby, but not the mental health. Mm -hmm. And just asking simple questions like, are you experiencing any stress? Is anything going on that you want to talk about? And they don't even have to go deep into it. They could just be like, okay, I have a referral for you. Yes. yes. (laughs) You know, like I have someone who specializes in this. Here's their information. Please contact them and I'll follow up with you at your next appointment. So and the, so, you know, once their doctor says it, it's like, you know what, I need to, I need to do this for me and my baby. It's different having a doctor say it and, and then like the, a best friend could say it and having a doctor say it's likely going to uh, have a deeper impact. I find that like I've told my students certain things and then like my doctor said the same thing I and mean, I believe the doctor and I'm like, okay. So what? Yeah. <laughs> so one, I know. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I really appreciate about your approach is you're very solution based, which uh, speaks to my type A personality. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, my, mine too. Mine so too. Can you start to break down or offer some solutions, both on a systemic level and on the personal level, of how uh, women can advocate for themselves and and what we can do to try to just have them and have a better pregnancy and and transition into uh, motherhood? So like on the systemic level, so we know that, um, you know, there are a lot of different things that impact our healthcare. Um, whether you're pregnant or not, there's a lot of stuff that mm-hmm. impacts uh, your overall experience in healthcare. But I think for pregnant women, uh, getting involved, I know politics, it's, it's tricky. you know, a difficult, <laughs> it's tricky. Um, but getting uh, in contact with members of Congress and urging them to support legislation that addresses maternal health disparities. So specifically the Maternal Health Accountability Act and the Premie Reauthorization Act. These are acts that are, you know, sitting on the desk of, of Congress people, putting pressure on them um, to know that this is something that is needed. Um, also, it's been found that states should implement a maternal maternal quality improvement toolkits in hospitals so that medical professionals are better equipped to respond to the leading causes of preventable death among pregnant and postpartum women. States should also implement legislation requiring medical students and physicians to complete cultural competency um, courses as part of their licensing or accreditation program. So addressing the implicit bias or unconscious bias through having them having to complete this, this, this coursework. Um, and social scientists in collaboration with medical professionals should continue to consider how racial biases and the perception of others' pain affect racial disparities in healthcare. So there's, you know, that's the systemic level, that's the macro level. And then when looking at uh, the micro level, and in my years of doing work in maternal mental health, it's important to send an empowering and encouraging message to women and recognizing that there are things within their control. So when speaking to women, discussing the internal forces that they can control and 
talking about what those things are within the power and control. So managing chronic stress and getting assistance when challenges are being faced, it's available. Addressing the mental health needs of women is important so that they do not feel alone through the birthing process and postpartum. Uh, I believe it's equally important for women to come into treatment in order to care for themselves, but also important to see a mental health provider um, that looks like them so that it minimizes the stigma. Mm -hmm. It it affirms to women in a positive way uh, when they see a provider who looks like them and have a certain understanding of of the problems that are being faced in their community. And so um, with racism being defined as a chronic stress issue and having a safe environment uh, with a a therapist of color to be able to freely express and address these racial injustices and frustrations within the systemic issue is very healing for women. So getting into mental health services, secondly, nutrition, that Mm -hmm. is huge. It's huge in the black community. It's, I think it's huge in America. Um, when you start thinking about how we eat, (laughs) um, I work with pregnant women and, and postpartum women and eating, eating healthier diets is important as well as exercise. And there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to diet and exercise, depending on the culture. Mm-hmm. Can so, you can you break that down a little more? Because what I thought was interesting is that statistically, women of color actually are an increased chance of developing gestational diabetes and high blood pressure. So yeah. I think how we how one eats and exercises can impact that. Yeah. So um, for for many Black women uh, that I work with, they don't they don't know what a healthy diet is and and what they should try to avoid eating during pregnancy. And so, you know, a woman goes into the doctor and the doctor's just like, okay, make sure you're eating healthy. Well, eating I guess healthy- that can be interpreted all different ways. Like I think about, and luckily my mother-in-law doesn't listen to this, but I think about what she considers healthy eating and what she gives my kids is like, oh, that's healthy. And then what I consider are two dramatically different things. Absolutely. So- <laughs> and so, and so you can imagine like, even with your mother-in-law, what she believes is healthy, like for, for someone who is pregnant and they're like, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll just get like the grilled, you know, sandwich at uh, McDonald's, the chicken, or even it might not even be grilled. It might just be the chicken sandwich with the fries and a Coke. And that's a healthier option than, let's say, you know, a Big Mac. And so it's about educating um, women of color on what is a healthy diet, because what are cultural foods, you know, what we're eating um, that can impact gestational diabetes, like the sugar and, mm-hmm. and the salts and things like that. It's about how can these meal, how can you still enjoy your cultural food with a healthy spin? And it's possible. Um, and then actually breaking down what that diet should look like. Um, because doctors aren't talking to people. Well, they're also not uh, nutritionists. That's what's something interesting. And, and, they don't actually get that much. I had talked to one of my friends who is an OB, and she was telling me she had like a semester of nutrition. Like she's a surgeon; that's her focus. So where <laughs> and, and it's, she's great at it. Um, but where do you suggest 
people find what's like healthy eating, especially if you're saying like cultural foods, do you have any suggestions of, of shifts or where to find this or where to just start to think differently about food? Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the internet can be our friends sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so during that pregnancy process, you know, YouTube is a great resource, Hmm. um, different books, you know, going to your local library or even going on Amazon. There's a lot of different, um, books on, um, pregnancy and, and diet during pregnancy that can be very beneficial. Um, I even post information on my social media pages about what a healthy balanced, uh, diet is for, um, women when it comes to, um, you know, pregnancy and diet. And I also encourage women to, you know, you're seeing your OB and if you do have, you know, certain benefits that are allotted through your insurance, going to see a nutritionist because going to see a nutritionist can help with creating a a dietary plan so that you are minimizing your risk for gestational diabetes and also incorporating exercise. I know A lot of people aren't big fans of it, but it does help. And depending on the culture, even in black culture, there's a lot of myths surrounding around like, no, you just need to sit. You know, if you move around too much, if you exercise, you might harm the baby. This is not true. I think some of that's passed down. I had, um, I remember a student, she wouldn't raise her hands over her head. And I Mm -hmm. asked why. And she said she was told by her grandmother it would strangle the baby. And, yeah. and so we talked about it and I actually, you know, broke up my anatomy books and we talked about it and then she felt, she actually felt so much better because she was so nervous because mm-hmm. she was told that. And she, I'm like, she's like, I didn't know how to reach things in my closet. So like, <laughs> it took such, she had such anxiety that sometimes uh-huh. these things are passed down and we, we, you know, we hear from families we're like, yeah, okay. And I, yeah, I like that idea of kind of, um, myth busting a little bit. Yeah, you have to myth bust. You know, I have, I encourage my moms just simple 30 minute walking. That's great. You know, just, just get out there and do something to take care of your physical health during pregnancy. It can help with decreasing um, the possibility of getting gestational diabetes and gestational hypertension. Just mm-hmm. doing those small changes, eating more vegetables, eating more fruit. Um, you know, cutting out, you know, processed foods, um, you know, sugary drinks, the sodas and things like that, increase your water, (laughs) you know, and, and this is stuff that you can take, you know, you can use it during pregnancy and after pregnancy as well, because postpartum period is also impacted by diet as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not doing the exercise, if you're not eating healthy, um, during the postpartum period, you're going to, you know, experience more, um, or higher levels of, of stress. Yeah. And also high blood pressure. People think that once baby's out, you can't have preeclampsia. In fact, um, I don't remember where it ranks, but it is during the first 42 days post-birth, people are still at the possibility of getting preeclampsia. And if someone that's already mm-hmm. susceptible to high blood pressure, I mean, that's, that's right there. So I like that you're reminding people to keep it going. So how do you recommend, we talked about finding support for, uh, supporting someone during pregnant during the actual labor. So if they're heading into a place of birth and they're 
they may not be feeling 100% supported. Maybe I loved your suggestion of finding someone that looks like you as your care provider, but if that's not available, how do you recommend empowering autonomy and most importantly, informed consent? Yeah, so uh, it is so important through this whole process to be able to have the certain level of autonomy and providing options to women. It's it's very powerful. Um, So women... When working with me, I provide facts and encourage them to make healthier choices. But outside of that is finding someone you connect with. So let's say you're, you know, if you're a woman of color and let's say you're in Iowa, you know, you're probably not going, if you're a black woman, you're probably not going to see a lot of providers that look like you. And it's just finding someone that you connect with and that they're able to answer your questions and they're being respectful. Um, if you're looking for doulas or, um, you know, a service provider in your area that can, that specializes in this and having options to connect, there are a lot of different places to look for that online. Um, postpartum support international is a great way to connect with service providers, um, who specialize in pregnancy and postpartum care. Um, If you're looking for, let's say, uh, in particular, a black therapist, Therapy for Black Girls is a wonderful um, resource to find uh, black clinicians in your area. Uh, Blackdoulas.org, that's another great way. I'll make sure we get all this in the show notes, too. Yeah. Um, utilizing, like, social media, like, it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Um, but utilizing social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, um, there are many therapists and birth workers doing grassroots work. You know, you can type in a hashtag and something can pop up and you can try to connect with those people. Also, like if you're in the state of California, like I am, um, there are black infant health programs in 13 counties. So, uh, going to www.cdph.ca.gov slash black infant health um, to find a local program as well as the Association of Holistic Maternal and Newborn Health, which can be reached at www.motherbabysupport.net. So these are just a few local and also ask your doctor, you know, ask your doctor, um, if they are connected to any other outside resources and also most communities have like community centers or um, little hubs where they show like what type of classes are going on. But the point is just creating a a village and a community of support around you. So however you can do that, do it. Embed yourself, get people, get your posse. I love that. Get people around you. And you know what I always say? Get someone who likes to cook. (laughs) You know, if you can find a friend who likes to throw down and cook some good food, that is so beneficial through the postpartum planning. I picked my friends the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) See? You got to up your game, Deb. You got to get you some friends who like to cook because... You know, when people come home with the baby, and I'm sure you've had this experience, you have moms who aren't eating yeah. because they, they haven't thought about the postpartum planning of 
eating. You're talking to the person that started consider a glass of milk a meal. My right. husband went back to work. No one was around me. I'm like, that, and my hands were full. I was with the baby. I'm like, well, that has protein and, and natural sugar, so we're going to call this glass of milk a meal for now. So, yeah, right. I right. my friends the wrong way. You know, um, and that's where the community comes in. Can you bring me a meal, please? You know, Um, and, and, and finding people who because as people, we're all talented, we're all gifted with something, find them and utilize it and don't Mm -hmm. be afraid to ask for help. Oh, this is all good information. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you feel is important for pregnant people to know? Woo, we covered a we lot. We did. I know. I took <laughs> notes. I was going, I did my research. I have more notes written down for the show notes. We did. We covered a lot. But just in case there's any stone we did not uncover that you wanted, or maybe we got it. Uh, you know, I would just say that education, education is one of the most important means of empowering women with knowledge, skills, and self-confidence necessary to participate fully in the birthing and postpartum process. So by educating women on their rights and providing information to them allows for them to become better decision makers. Mm -hmm. So I truly believe that knowledge is power. And once equipped, moms, you know, that I have worked with experience uh, more positive birth outcomes and experiences. So, you know, if if you're pregnant and you're listening, educate yourself. Do not expect for the doctor to, you know, mm-hmm. um, tell you every ounce and every bit of information that's going to happen during your pregnancy. Having a, a, a level of curiosity about the process and wanting to seek information into what's going to make you healthy and what's going to make the baby healthy is so important. So putting on sort of like this, you know, childlike cap of curiosity and, you know, making a little adventure of educating yourself on what is eating healthy and what kind of exercises can I do? And, um, you know, things like that is so important because there, I know you run a a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. And so as part of, you know, reducing some of this chronic stress and engaging into, um, relaxing activity, you know, exploring programs like meditation and yoga and Tai Chi or gentle exercises. All of these are wonderful things. Um, and some, depending on your community, they might offer it for free. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and making sure you schedule these things, um, in order to, you got to honor it, you got to schedule it and you got to do something relaxing because being a, a, a parent is very stressful. <laughs> so you, you got to yes, have is. an outlet. You got to have an outlet. So I would just say education, educating yourself and having just, you know, pure curiosity. And you know what? Once you educate yourself, you're better prepared when you are going into those doctor's appointments. Yeah. And you're better prepared to ask the type of questions that you feel you need to ask. Mm-hmm. Or if something is a concern for you, now you're better prepared to have that conversation. Oh, I love this. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you, I know we talked a lot, but if you still have a piece of advice or tip you can offer for your expectant parents, we're going to be right back. And we're back. Okay, so I know we covered a lot. Is there any last little nugget you want to offer? The last nugget, the most important, I would say is 
find your community. Yes. Find your community. Get support around you. Get support around you and your family. Do not get too busy planning for the arrival of the baby and forget to plan for when you're bringing the baby home. Mm -hmm. Okay, postpartum planning is equally as important. Um, Also, do not be afraid to ask for help. Knowing and understanding the signs of postpartum depression and understanding that there are professionals who are trained to help you. Maintaining your self-care and taking your time out. I have to tell mom this all the time. Take a time out. You know, baby's fussy. Baby's, you know, you fed them, you changed the diaper, you, you played little games you play and they're still fussy. Take a time out. I think and that's don't good advice. To schedule your to, self-care. I think that I actually give myself timeouts because um, sometimes I'm getting upset with my kids, and if I don't take a timeout, I will start to yell at them. So I think mm-hmm. that, that acknowledgement time of timeout uh, is is a savior for everyone because we know that yelling at the child or getting overly frustrated is not going to help anyone. Oh, I it, love it's, that. It's it's not going to help anyone. And then lastly. Be gentle and compassionate with yourselves as parents. Mistakes will happen. It's a huge learning curve. No one is perfect, regardless of what social media might say otherwise. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You have such good information. I'm so glad I got to talk to you. So where can people find your work? Well, uh, you can check me out on my website, www.spiritedbytruth.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Spirited by Truth. And if you are in, you know, Southern California, if you're in the Inland Empire area, we will be starting some pop-up meetups um, within the community. So follow me on uh, those platforms so that you can have the information. So good. You do such great work. The community that you serve is so lucky to have you. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate having a chance to get to chat with you. This was wonderful, Deb. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.